a joy to be with you. I wish that all of you could sit in the front row so you could hear all the voices singing. It's one of my favorite parts about Sunday. Uh, Stephen and I and a couple other guys from our church had the chance to be in California a few weeks ago and to sing hymns of the faith with about 4,000 other guys. And that's special. That's an amazing experience. But I'd actually rather sing with you. There's something different about singing with people you know, people that are part of your family, people that you live life with. And it's one of my favorite parts of every Sunday is getting a chance to be here to confess those truths with you, to celebrate those truths with you. I'd like to invite you this morning to open your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 7. So we'll be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Part of life is dealing with death. It touches all of us. There's nobody here today who has not been touched by death, by loss, by sorrow, by the deep pain that comes when a life on this earth comes to an end. There was no death in God's good creation at the beginning. It wasn't always this way. But we know from Scripture that this death that is such a feature of our lives, it was introduced. It's a corruption. It's a consequence of sin. In Adam, all die. So how about some good news today? In the book of Luke, we come face to face with Jesus, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The announcement that God's plan of salvation is moving forward, that God's plan of redemption is right on track, that it's being fulfilled. His gracious plan is on schedule. And Jesus is not just preaching this good news about the kingdom. He's also illustrating it. He's performing miracles that testify to his identity as the Son of God. Miracles that authenticate him as Israel's Messiah. The central piece that will bring about the establishment of God's kingdom. And as we will see today, Jesus' compassion and Jesus' power as the Messiah, as the one proclaiming the kingdom, his compassion and power extend to those who suffer under the curse of death. Comfort and hope and joy, even in a world marked by death, can be found. It can be found in Jesus. The compassionate power of Christ is good news for those who mourn. And we see this good news in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Luke writes, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Lord, we've come into your presence this morning. 
grateful for the truth of Scripture, grateful for the hope and the life that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, our great need today is to be emptied of self and to be filled with more of Christ. To see less of this world and less of ourselves, to see more of Christ. To love less the things of the world, to love less ourselves, and to love even more our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, would you meet our need today? Would your spirit renew us reinvigorate a desire to know Christ, strengthen our faith in in who he is and in his promises and give us a sense of awe and wonder at his glory. We pray, Father, that you would feed our souls with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. The compassionate power of Jesus is good news for those who mourn. As we jump into chapter 7 here, Jesus is on the move once again. He's traveling from town to town as as he told the people in Capernaum in chapter 4 that he must go to each of these towns and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And it says that he's coming here to a town called Nain. Nain is a small town, and it's actually only a few miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And there's another small town that Nain is very near to. It's actually on the other side of this hill from a town called Shunem. And if you've read the Old Testament, you might be aware of the town of Shunem. There's a famous woman and her husband who lived there, this Shunammite woman, where Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 4, raised this Shunammite's son from the dead. So that story about this great prophet of God raising a boy from the grave, that was part of the local history in this region. Elisha was a great prophet who was a successor to His mentor, whose name was Elijah, Elijah had also raised someone from the grave, a Gentile widow's son in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, 24, the woman says to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Elijah's miracle in 1 Kings 17 had verified him that he was truly God's messenger. And Elisha's similar miracle in Shunem verified him as well, that he was Elijah's true successor. And together, these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they stood head and shoulders above all the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament. Not because of their writings. We don't actually have any books written by Elijah or Elisha. But they are greater than the rest in terms of the miraculous power that God displayed through them. Nobody else did miracles in the Old Testament like Elijah and Elisha. And now Jesus is about to do something in the town of Nain that will both parallel these great prophets of old and also surpass them both. Luke describes Jesus traveling with his disciples in verse 11. He goes to a town called Nain and his disciples were with him and also a great crowd is following along. So Luke is sort of setting the stage for us. He's painting this picture that Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus who speaks the words of life, Jesus who comes to bring us eternal life, is on the road to Nain. And then this crowd with Jesus collides with another crowd, a crowd that is formed not by life but by death. Verse 12 says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out. This man who has died. A crowd 
is at the gate that has been formed around the occasion of this man's death. And this death is a tragedy at multiple levels. A man had died, verse 12. Even if we have no other details, that enough shows us that something is broken, that there is sorrow, that there is grief, and that there is loss. Death is always a cause for sorrow. But as Luke tells us more information, we see this tragedy is even greater than many other funerals might be. He is the only son of his mother. This amplifies the pain even more. It shows that this is not an old man in his 80s or 90s whose parents are long gone. Usually, parents are not supposed to bury their kids. Kids bury their parents. That's the way we hope it will turn out at least. And the fact that he is the only son of his mother means that there is no one left to carry on the family name. And in ancient Israel, the, the land allotments and the family legacy mattered a great deal. And to have no son to perpetuate the name of the family meant that this family's line was coming to an end. Not only was this her only son, not only had she lost him, but even worse, we find that she's a widow. This isn't the first funeral that she's attended. This isn't the first family member she's had to bury And what it means now is that with no husband and no son, there was no one left to protect her, no one left to provide for her. And in that culture, there were very few ways for women to make a living and provide for themselves. She is a vulnerable and bereaved woman. So you have this mother, you have the neighbors, you probably have some professional mourners that are part of the crowd, but then you have others from the city. It says a considerable crowd is there because they recognize this is no ordinary funeral. This is no ordinary loss. This is a deep tragedy that has actually affected the whole community. And they're taking this body out of the city to be buried. So Jesus and his disciples and this crowd following him, you could call it team life, they meet this other crowd coming out of the gate, team death. And this meeting place takes place, it takes place in a very visible location. It's at the gate. The gate is the major center for business dealings in the city. It's a high traffic spot. This would have been very conspicuous. So this this collision of crowds is taking place at center stage. And Luke tells us these details and builds the anticipation. What is going to happen next? What is Jesus going to do? Well, Luke's careful description of Jesus' response gives us some precious insights into the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Insights that are more than just these casual historical descriptions. No, these are insights into the very person and the character and the glory of Jesus that are meant to call us to faith. Insights into who Jesus is and what Jesus is like that are meant to move us to worship. I want to look at both of these insights together. First of all, I want us to consider together this morning the compassion of Jesus. Consider the compassion of Jesus. We see this in verses 13 through 14. Verse 13 says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Jesus saw. Jesus understood. And Jesus felt compassion for this mother. When we suffer, we might be tempted to think sometimes that maybe Jesus doesn't see, that maybe Jesus doesn't understand, that maybe Jesus doesn't care. 
But Hebrews 4.15 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Part of the glorious wisdom of the incarnation, part of the incredible grace in Christ's coming to earth is that he became one of us. Yes, he is fully divine. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he is one with the Father from eternity past, God of very God. But Jesus became a man. He took on flesh. He knows what it's like to live life in a broken world where grief and sorrow falls upon every person. Jesus saw her, and he felt compassion. He had compassion on her. This word for compassion means a deep, visceral feeling. He's moved with pity. His heart aches for this woman who has buried a husband and is now bearing a son and is now facing the prospect of an uncertain future. She's alone, a bereaved woman, and Jesus feels the weight of that reality. And so Jesus acts. His compassion is more than a feeling. First, in his compassion, Jesus takes initiative. Jesus takes initiative. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. Notice what doesn't happen here. Unlike many of the other stories we have in the Gospels, no one asks Jesus for help. No one comes and explains why Jesus should help this lady. No one comes to make a request. No one makes any sort of appeal. This is very different than the situation with the centurion in verses 1 through 10. This man who sent delegates from the town, he sent sent representatives from Capernaum to come and, and ask Jesus for help. Jesus makes the first move. He takes initiative out of his compassion for this woman. This tells us something about Jesus, that the one we worship, the one we trust, he's not some reluctant savior. He's not someone who agrees to show mercy and minister to us only when we twist his arm. Only when we jump through the right hoops. Only if we can somehow talk him into it. No, Christ takes the initiative because of his compassion for this woman. I mean, think about that in terms of our own salvation. Did we ask Jesus to come to earth? Did we ask God to send his son? Did we ask Christ to live a righteous life that fulfills the law on our behalf? Did we ask him to die on the cross and atone for our sins? No. Salvation is God taking initiative to move towards us. In his compassion, Jesus takes initiative. Second, in his compassion, notice that Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks to her in verse 13. He had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. He sees her need. He understands her grief. He recognizes her situation. So he moves towards her, and he speaks to her. His words appear confusing at first. Do not weep. Jesus, don't you see what's happening here? I'm burying my only son right next to the place where I buried his father. What do you mean, do not weep? What is Jesus saying? Is this some sort of rebuke? Is Jesus callous? Is he telling her, buck up, knock it off, everybody has to bury somebody, and I don't really like it when people cry. 
No, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus himself will weep when his friend Lazarus dies in John chapter 11. I think these words of Jesus where he tells her, do not weep, are really an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to faith, an invitation to lift her eyes and to look to him, to listen to him, to see what he is about to do on her behalf. It's not only an invitation to faith, it's an announcement of his intentions. She is weeping because her son is dead. But Jesus says, stop weeping. I am here, I care, and I'm about to do something for you. The time for weeping is over, and the time to behold what I can do for you with my compassionate power, the time for me to act has come. You see, Jesus is about to deal with the source of her sorrow. She won't have to wait very long to understand exactly why Jesus speaks to her and says, do not weep. In his compassion, Jesus speaks to those who mourn. He speaks to us as well, doesn't he? Jesus gives us promises in his word. Jesus gives us invitation to believe. Jesus gives us an announcement of what he has done and what he will do on our behalf to rescue us and restore us and raise us to eternal life. Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark with with no idea about what he's going to do. He doesn't leave us with nothing to hope in. He doesn't leave us with no word of comfort to rest in. In his compassion, Jesus speaks to those burdened with sins and suffering, and he calls us to believe. He calls us to trust him. In his compassion, Jesus takes initiative, and he speaks. But third, in his compassion, we see this in verse 14, Jesus extends himself. He speaks to her in verse 13, says, do not weep, and then... Verse 14, something very shocking happens. He came up and touched the bier. As these two crowds merge into one at the gate, Jesus steps to the center and he does something that was unthinkable. He touches the, the bier, this, this stretcher. This, they would have had these wooden planks and, and the body would have been laid on top with a cloth covering it and the pallbearers would have been carrying it. And Jesus reaches out his hand. He lays his hand on the bier. And when he does this, everybody stands still. Everybody stops. You see, doing this would have rendered Jesus ceremonially unclean. Numbers 19.11 says, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. If you're a family member, you have to do it because somebody's got to bury the body. Someone has to dress the body. And then you'd be ritually unclean in a ceremonial sense for seven days. You'd have to go through purification and cleansing before you could be considered clean again. So Jesus had no obligation to touch this boy, to lay his hand on the bier. Remember, Jesus is able to perform miracles from a distance simply by speaking the word. Remember the situation immediately before this with the centurion's servant. The centurion said in a great display of faith, I did not presume to come to you, verse 7, but say the word and let my servant be healed. All he has to do is say the word. Touch is not necessary. But Jesus demonstrates his compassion here by extending himself. This is highly personal. Jesus doesn't know this woman. He doesn't know this young man. But Jesus is not some long-distance savior who hesitates to get too close to sinners. 
who hesitates to draw near to those who are suffering. He does not draw back even from death itself. He draws near to bring salvation, to bring power to bear, to bring life, and he does it up close and personal. In his compassion, Jesus extends himself to this mourning widow. This truth is seen even more powerfully, once again, in the incarnation itself. We all know Philippians chapter 2 tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus does not provide salvation from a distance. He offers himself. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, John 1.14. Hebrews 2.17, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ, in his compassion, takes initiative to draw near to us, to speak words of comfort that announce good news and invite faith, and he personally extends himself, even physically, to sinners and sufferers. Do you see the compassion of Jesus on display in this amazing story? Well, that's not all that is here to be seen. We not only need to consider the compassion of Jesus this morning, but secondly, we need to consider the power of Jesus. Consider the power of Jesus on display in verses 14 through 15. He came up and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. First of all, in his power, we see that Jesus confronts death. In his power, he confronts death. And he's the only one who could do that. There were a lot of people there that day who felt compassion. There's a large crowd that's gathered. Many feel the agony and sorrow of this woman, and they grieve for her and grieve with her. But only one of them was able to do something about it, and that's Jesus. What he is about to do here is a display of power, but it's also a display of his purpose that reflects the mission that Jesus is on. In Isaiah chapter 25, God speaks through the prophet to announce these promises of what God's kingdom will mean for his people. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says that he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. When Jesus performs this miracle, he is confronting death itself, displaying his power that he, as God, is the one who is able to swallow up death forever. Hebrews 2.14 says that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus became flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's what Jesus came to do, to confront and to defeat and to destroy death. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to deal with death, to defeat death, to destroy death because death is an enemy. God is not content to let the serpents lie to let Adam's sin 
which introduced death into his perfect creation. He's not content to let that have the last word. As the author of life, Jesus sees this as an opportunity not only to minister to this woman, but also as an opportunity to demonstrate why he came in the first place. He's about to give everyone an object lesson of the good news that he is preaching. Death is undefeated when it comes to facing sinful man. We always lose, don't we? If Jesus doesn't come back, every one of us will be buried. But Jesus is not a sinful man. He is the Son of Man, the sinless Son of God, empowered by the very Spirit of God with the power to defeat death. In his power, Jesus confronts death as he steps to the center stage of this scene in the gate. And then secondly, in his power, Jesus speaks words of life. He speaks words of life. And this is a display of his power. This is one of three recorded resurrections in the ministry of Jesus. This man is raised. So also is Jairus' daughter. We'll see that in Luke chapter 8. And then his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. All three were dead. Dead, dead. Lazarus was even buried. But Jesus restores all of them to life. And he raises all three of them by speaking. Again, we've seen Jesus perform miracles in many ways. Sometimes he touches. Sometimes he speaks. Sometimes he gives instructions. Go wash you know, in the river and wipe off the mud that I put on your eyes. Jesus heals and does miracles in a number of different ways. But every time there's resurrection, it is because Jesus speaks words of life. Here in verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. Luke chapter 8, child, arise. John chapter 11, Lazarus, come forth. It is the power of his words that creates what it commands. Look closely in verse 14. Sometimes these stories are familiar to us. We read through them quickly. But notice carefully what Jesus says. Young man, I say to you, arise. I have that little phrase, I say to you, underlined in my Bible. Because the sentence would actually make sense if that wasn't there. Young man, arise. That would have worked. It would have, because of who Jesus is. But listen to what Jesus is doing. He is announcing in front of everyone who's watching that the command he's giving matters because of who it is that's speaking. I say to you. And who is Jesus? Luke already told us in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and said, young man, I say to you, arise. What he says matters because of who he is. He is the Lord. It is the Lord who stopped the procession. It is the Lord who touched the bier. It is the Lord who instructed the woman not to weep. And it is the Lord who commands the dead body to become alive again. His words have authority. His words have power. The centurion, like we saw last time in chapter chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the centurion can command servants. The centurion can command soldiers and citizens. But he knows that Jesus has an even greater authority. Jesus can command demons. Jesus can command disease. Jesus can even command death itself. So Jesus commands the young man to arise with the power of his personal authority. As the son of God, who has been, had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him at his baptism, commissioned and empowered for this work. 
This is Genesis chapter one power, speaking the world into existence. The God who says, let there be, and it comes to be. This same power is wielded through the word of Jesus. This authoritative speaking reveals to us that though Jesus is doing a miracle like Elisha and like Elijah before him, as a prophet raising a son, Jesus is far superior to the prophets of old. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 21, it says, Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon him. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. There's a lot going on there. In, in 1 Kings chapter 17, you have Elijah praying and asking for God's help. And you have several different actions taking place as, as Elijah, in faith, beseeches God to, to work and to raise this child. 2 Kings chapter 4, we see Elisha's miracle. When Elisha came into the house, 2 Kings 4.32, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Both times Elijah and Elisha perform these miracles of resurrection. They pray. Jesus doesn't pray. He simply speaks. And immediately... Not with any sneezing, not with walking back and forth, not with any other process. Immediately, the child is raised to life. The young man sits up and begins to speak. There's no puppetry. There's no sleight of hand here. Jesus is not an illusionist. Everybody present sees that this child is breathing and talking. He's alive. When some who follow Jesus turned away, John chapter 6, do you remember that? Jesus asked the 12 if they too were going to leave. And do you remember what Peter said? He said, where else shall we go? You have what? The words of life. You have the words of life. Not just words about life. Words that create and give life. Words that actually make alive. This miracle of physical resurrection does two things. I think, first of all, it's an illustration of the miracle that many of us have experienced, the miracle of the new birth, when we are spiritually born again and made alive. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, that's compassion, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. By grace, we've been saved. We are born again. We are made spiritually alive when the Lord calls us out of death and into life. 1 Peter 2.9 says that the Lord has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 5.10 says the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. 2 Peter 1.3 says that he has called us to his own glory and excellence. This miracle of raising up this boy illustrates the miracle of the new birth. 
It reminds us of our own experience when Christ gave us life by speaking the word of the gospel, opening our eyes and our hearts to understand and receive the good news. But this miracle also foreshadows our future experience when our bodies will one day be raised to life, never to die again. One day we will be glorified. Our bodies will be made perfect and fit to dwell with Christ forever. John 5, 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That future resurrection will take place when Jesus speaks. We will hear his voice and walk out of the grave. In his power, Jesus confronts death, and in his power, Jesus speaks words of life. Third, in his power, Jesus restores what is broken. He restores what is broken. I love the personal touch in verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and note this, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus gave him to his mother. The way Luke phrases this deliberately echoes the words of 1 Kings 17 that Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. There's a parallel here. And, And what Luke is drawing out is that it's not just a display of power. Jesus is restoring something here. Death is separation. But the gracious power of God, the power that was at work in Elijah in the Old Testament and Elisha in the Old Testament, and the power that is now present in the person of Jesus here in the New Testament, that gracious power restores. That gracious power renews what has been broken and destroyed by sin and death. The embrace that must have taken place in that moment. It's hard to imagine. The wonder, the relief, the amazement, the almost painful joy that her son is now sitting up and speaking to her and Jesus is giving him to her. Jesus did that. Jesus powerfully restores what is broken, what has been lost, what has been destroyed. And this is grace. It's a gift. It's not because this woman earned it. It's not because she negotiated, not because she persuaded him. This is Jesus' gift to her. Jesus gave him to his mother. It's motivated by compassion, accomplished by divine power. In his power, Jesus restores what is broken. So how does everyone respond to this? Well, look in verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. These people are in awe. They are amazed. They recognize the uniqueness of this event. This kind of stuff doesn't happen. And they praised, they glorified God, because they knew that only God can give life. So they praised and glorified God. And notice what they say. There's sort of two pieces to their their confession, their declaration here. First of all, they say a great prophet has arisen among us. A prophet like Elijah. A prophet like Elisha of old. A, A true prophet who's doing great wonders. This can only be the power of God. And what they confess is true. 
Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is truly sent by God to proclaim this message, the good news of the kingdom. But we know Jesus is much more than a prophet. And we'll see that next week when John's disciples come to Jesus with questions. Who are you? Are you the one to come or should we wait for another? But this is the first part of their confession. A great prophet has arisen among us. They recognize because of the local history of Shunem, because of their knowledge of the Old Testament, this is something like Elijah and Elisha. There's a second part to their confession. God has visited his people. This is the second time we've actually heard this phrase in the Gospel of Luke. The first time is chapter 1, verse 68, when Zechariah, who's given this vision in the temple that he and his wife Elizabeth in their old age are going to have a son. Their son would be John the Baptist. Zechariah bursts out in praise as soon as his speech is restored. And he says that God has visited and redeemed his people. To say that God has visited his people is to acknowledge that this is a manifestation of God's power in their midst. But it's more than just saying God did something. The idea of visitation in the Old Testament carries an idea of both salvation and judgment. The visitation of God. When God shows up, it is to fulfill promises. It is to move his plan and his purposes forward. It is to deal out judgment on his enemies and to bring salvation to those that he loves. So this is more than just saying, oh, cool, a miracle from God. They're acknowledging that something is happening in their midst that has bearing on the plight of the nation. This is not just about this woman and her family and that community. They're saying God has visited his people. This is fulfillment language. It's even eschatological language that the kingdom is drawing near. God's promises are being fulfilled. And this statement is true in more ways than they even realize. For God has indeed visited his people personally by coming down and walking among them. These people may not fully realize it yet, but God is actually in their midst. The result of all of this, verse 17, is that the word spreads. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word report here is logos. It's the word. It's the message. It's the report about Jesus. And it's spreading. And the word that they're spreading is about him. It's a report about Jesus, that God is doing something in Israel, that God has raised up this great prophet, and God's power is at work in him. And we think God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. He's like the prophets of old. He has compassion. He has the power to speak life and raise the dead. So the word about Jesus continues to spread, that this is what he is like, and this is what he's able to do. The compassionate power of Christ is good news for those who mourn. In conclusion, I want to draw, draw out very briefly three implications for us in light of this story. Number one is this, is that Jesus is to be worshipped. If this is who he is, if this is what he is like, then Jesus is to be worshipped. We too, like the crowd there that day, must glorify God because of what Jesus is doing, because of who Jesus is. We know that Jesus is truly sent from God, that he is the ultimate prophet and more. We know that God has visited us in the person of his son. This visitation is seen not only in this miracle, but the power of God will be seen in his, his own death and resurrection. 
See, I think it's amazing when we consider that Jesus, he extended himself and he touched death in this story. Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus himself will be touched by death. He'll actually experience it. He will lay down his life and die. But Jesus, in his great power, will rise from the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus will be even greater than this one because this resurrection and the resurrections in the Old Testament and Lazarus' resurrection, that was just like rewinding the tape a little bit. It was a resuscitation, putting them back where they were before they died. But all of them were destined to die again. But when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he broke the very power of death. He would never die again. And therefore, he opens the way for all who believe in him to share in that kind of resurrection. Jesus did not just reverse death temporarily on Easter Sunday. He defeated death permanently. Jesus has the keys to death and hell. And therefore, Jesus is to be worshipped. Glorify God by recognizing what he has done through Jesus Christ. If this is who Jesus is and what he's like, first of all, he's to be worshipped. But second, he's to be trusted. If this is what he's like, a compassionate Christ. If this is who he is with the very power to defeat death, then Jesus is to be trusted. Friends, do not weep like those who have no hope. Look and see his power to save. Trust his compassion. Trust that he sees you, that he understands you, that he cares for you. Trust in his power that there is a time coming when death itself will be swallowed up forever and when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus is to be trusted. If he has compassion on those who suffer and mourn, which we see here, if he can touch death and undo it, if he can be touched by death and overcome it, then shouldn't we believe in him? Shouldn't we trust in him? Who else has this perfect combination of both compassion for us and the power to bring about salvation? There's no one like him. We should trust him. Jesus is to be worshiped. Jesus is to be trusted. And finally, Jesus is to be proclaimed. If this is really what he's like, compassionate. If he has this kind of power to save, then other people need to hear the report, the word about Jesus. The word spread in his day and it needs to keep spreading today. It's amazing as you flip the page, finishing up Luke and you go into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. You know what it was that the disciples testified of everywhere they went? The resurrection of Jesus Christ his power over death, the fact that he is alive and that he offers life and resurrection to all who believe. That's the message that they testified to. That God has visited his people by sending his own son to bring us salvation. That all who hear this good news now are invited, even commanded, to repent of sin and believe in Jesus. That is a message we too are called to proclaim. I hope that this vision of the compassionate power of Christ will move you today to worship and to faith and to mission to tell others about the Jesus that we know. Father, thank you for your word and for the glorious picture it gives us of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We're so thankful today that even though we face death, we face loss, we experience sorrow and pain and grief, we have a Savior who has compassion on us. And we have a Savior who tells us not to weep, but to look in faith to him and to trust his power to undo the effect of the curse, to overcome the power of death, to wipe away every tear from our eyes and to give us eternal life. Lord, I pray that each person here today would contemplate right now the reality of their own death. That there's a time coming when our hearts will stop beating. Our brains will stop, stop firing. The lungs will stop breathing. And we will die. I pray, Father, that if there are any who are not trusting in Jesus Christ to save them, not looking to him for forgiveness, not looking to him for the hope of resurrection. I pray that today they would recognize there's no one else like Jesus. There's no one else who can be trusted. There's no one else who can help. There's no one else who loves like him. There's no one else who is strong like him, strong and kind as we sang earlier. I pray that we would be moved as a church, as those who do know Christ, that we would be moved today to worship Jesus, to trust in him, and to boldly testify to others of the power of salvation in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd receive the glory in this church as we consider your incredible mercy and compassion towards us. We thank you. We love you. We honor you. We give you all the glory and the praise for you are worthy and deserving of our faith and our obedience and our love and our worship. Amen.